Welcome to the IFP podcast series. Today's podcast is an IFP Distinguished Visitor Lecture and features Professor Bronwyn Fox from Swinburne University of Technology. Bronwyn Fox is the founding director of Swinburne University's Manufacturing Futures Research Institute, where her mission is to support transition of Australia's industries into Industry 4.0, the fourth industrial revolution. Bronwyn is an internationally recognised expert on carbon fibre and composite materials and has published more than 150 papers during her career. Her lecture, recorded on Friday the 15th of February, is entitled Industry 4.0, Test Lab for Composite Product Automation, Creating Impact for Australian Industry. We hope you enjoy this IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture. Thank you for the kind introduction and thank you so much for the invitation to come here. I've had such an amazing morning. You have um, phenomenal facilities, but I'm most excited about the conversations I've had with your researchers. You've got some incredibly talented researchers here who have fantastic ideas. So I'm really hoping that this talk will stimulate and this visit will stimulate some new collaborations. Um, there's not a lot of science. Full disclosure, in my talk today, I'm going to talk about a new facility that we're building at Swinburne, but it's a material science enabling platform, and I really hope that that encourages you to think about how it could potentially be used. Um, my passion is working with industry, and I've worked with industry for my whole career in solving real-world problems, but in bringing that back to some fundamental research as well. So um, at Deakin, I started in 2001, and... Uh, grew a research group that was focused on out-of-autoclave cure of carbon fibre composites. And then um, gradually we realised that there was an enormous opportunity around carbon fibre manufacture. So I've worked on everything through um, from the fibre precursors, a polyacrylonitrol precursor polymerisation and analysis, to carbonisation, burning that and converting it into a black carbon fibre, to embedding it in, into a polymer matrix, to modifying the surface of the fibre, and then into rapid cure of carbon fibre composite materials. So these are materials that are extensively used in industry. Have any of you flown in a, a 787 Dreamliner? Excellent. How did you find it? It's, I, I love it. It's um, Depending on the seating configuration and how you know closely they... Yeah, they're fantastic. Liquid crystalline display, so there's no shutters on the windows. You press a button and it changes the orientation and you know, cre creates a degree of opacity that you want. Um, carbon fibre composites are used to make the fuselage and it saves 50% of weight on that aircraft compared to a, an equivalent aircraft, which also means that there's 20% reduction on environmental emissions, which is really important. So these materials are really critical for the future for lightweighting transport and reducing emissions in transport. But first of all, I'm going to talk a little bit about Swinburne, um, the Institute, and why we're focused on Industry 4.0, why it's important, and what it, it offers for Australia. So first of all, if you'd like to come and visit us, Hawthorne is a fantastic location in an eastern um, suburb in, in Melbourne. Brilliant coffee. We're um, situated, immersed in a community environment, so we're surrounded by restaurants and cafes, and it's a, a really great place to be. We've got, um, actually, we've just had a rooftop cinema open up nearby, so 
um, it's a really nice place to hang out and we have two key facilities which are our Advanced Technology Centre and our Advanced Manufacturing and Design Centre. And what I really have always loved about Swinburne, even before I joined there, was that in this particular building, you'll see the glass windows, there's an enormous structural testing lab where they test concrete structures and they do that in full display of the public. And I think it's really a wonderful showcase for engineering and technology to have that you know, on full display so that anyone walking past can see giant concrete structures being smashed. And in, in fact, um, the group there did the work. There's a bridge in Melbourne, the Westgate Bridge that links Geelong and Melbourne, and it was um, really overloaded. And, and in 2011, um, the group at Swinburne did the calculations to show that if you glued carbon fibre strips to the underside of that bridge, you could increase the load bearing capacity and open up an extra lane. So they were really instrumental in doing that work. Uh, Swinburne has five new institutes and um, we were the first born of the institutes, which brings it's the usual problems of being a first born child. But um, we, uh, there's five institutes and I really love the model because they're, they're, all of the institutes are focused on solving big problems, so health, um, what can we do with cities to make them smarter, social innovation, data science, and of course, manufacturing. And it's underpinned by our um, digital innovation platform and the innovation precinct. The innovation precinct at Swinburne is in a heritage listed fire station. The red front doors of the fire station lead you into a space where we're incubating startups and accelerating um, you know, companies and helping them progress to the next stage. And it's a really wonderful environment keeping all of the heritage nature of that fire station but building onto it and creating a co-working space. Have any of you heard of Industry 4.0? Excellent. So this um, is a really, um, it's the first time an industrial revolution's been ever uh, described in advance of time rather than looking back in history. Um, now, the first industrial revolution is the one that we think about when we think about England and steam-driven processes and the start of manufacturing. The second industrial revolution was really um, around, a, a, around Ford and their moving production line and how that really revolutionised the way that we make products. The third industrial revolution is what we think about if you can picture Homer Simpson at, at the nuclear power plant in front of a computer control system that's, you know, robotics, um, computer control systems. That's the third industrial revolution. The fourth industrial revolution builds on all of these and adds the element of digitalisation. So for us, it's really about the digitalisation of manufacturing processes. Now, it was predominantly... Um, developed in Germany and the, it was the um, former um, chair of the World Economic um, Forum, Klaus Schwab, who really coined the phrase and it's taken off and it's really reinvigorated and, and, um, and regenerated the landscape in Germany in the way that they think about manufacturing. So we're, that's why we're partnered really strongly with a lot of German research organisations. But there's a huge societal impact as well. And um, this is really not a science slide, but this is one of my favourite subjects. I think there's a lot to learn from the first Industrial Revolution. And you'll see in the media there's more and more articles about how um, automation and robotics are going to um, displace jobs and displace workers. Um, it's not necessarily the case. It can be an enabler, but it will be a transformational change for society. 
And I think that we can learn from the first Industrial Revolution. John Ruskin was, um, he was really interesting to me because I'm, I've always been fascinated by the pre-Raphaelite artists who were predominant at this time. They were a radical art movement. And there's an exhibition in Canberra right now if you want to go and see it. But um, John Ruskin was a patron of the arts and he was um, a philosopher and um, philanthropist in some ways and really looked at the social implications of that first industrial revolution. And you can see this quote from here, that we manufacture everything except men. Um, and to brighten, to strengthen, to refine, or to form a single living spirit never enters into our estimate of advantages. So I think it's really important that we think about the social implications of the fourth industrial revolution, as well as the benefits of the technology. So here's what's happening in Germany. In Germany, um, they have a, a, a national platform for Industry 4.0, and it brings together competing organizations like Siemens and Bosch, they have a national network of Industry 4.0 test labs and they have a framework for thinking about Industry 4.0 that involves research organisations, it involves the standard organisations and it involves the unions, which are really important. And so you can um, call a hotline and visit any one of these Industry 4.0 test labs and they're all based on a different system. So there's a phenomenal one that's based on optimising energy and... In Germany, there's such an increased adoption of renewable energies that, that you can actually, um, if there's a peak in renewable energy in the system, you will actually be paid to take uh, electricity out of the system. And so that ends up with a certain amount of almost day trading on, um, on the use of electricity. So you can look at when there's going to be a peak in, in wind or solar and you know schedule your manufacturing for that day and you can actually make money from manufacturing your product as well as make money from using the energy. So it's a, a really fascinating um, system, but each and every test lab focuses on a different area. And this is what is currently being established in Australia, and I'll talk about that soon. The other thing that I really love is that they, um, the national network of test labs generates these use cases, and there are so many of them. We've been involved in a couple of them, a couple of joint Australian-German use cases, but this one is particularly special because it's about assembling um, electrical cabinetry, which is quite a complex um, task that doesn't make sense to automate. And this is about using assistive technologies like VR and AR to enable um, people with disabilities to re-enter the workforce. And I think this, there's some huge societal benefits from new technologies that we can realise as well. One of our um, joint use cases with the University of Stuttgart and the University of Weingarten was around a smart composite structure. Um, and really, we're very interested in how we can integrate sensors into materials and, and create um, assets that you can monitor, that they will report back on their environment. And we're really interested in integrating new sensor technologies into these materials, particularly um, sensor mater sensors that detect gases in, in particular at the moment. Um, so how, what does this offer for Australia? In Australia we have uh, a couple of challenges and one of them is that there's an innovation gap. There's a huge opportunity for global innovation and while we're number 10 on innovation inputs, we're actually number 72 in the world on research business collaboration. So we need to close that gap between research and industry to really achieve outcomes. And the other is the productivity gap 
these are both fascinating documents to read. One was written by the, um, chaired by a group that was run by the chief scientist and the other is written by CSIRO. The productivity gap is the efficiency of our labour. We can improve the efficiency of our labour through smart automation and digitalisation and that's a recommendation from Australia 2030 navigating our uncertain future. So where is this happening overseas? In Europe they're making significant investments in research facilities that really bring together industry and universities. And in the UK, they have these high value manufacturing catapult centres. They're phenomenal. Um, I'm closely associated with one in Bristol and one in Sheffield, and one of my former PhD students works at the one at Sheffield, and they bring together industry and researchers working on real problems. And the one in Sheffield was rose out of the ashes of a mining site that was shut down and every time I go there, there's a brand new building and on site with researchers, they've got a factory for Rolls-Royce making single crystal titanium um, turbine blades. So it's, it really is an amazing model. The one that I'm interested in, there's a, a, a national network of, um, of excellence clusters around Germany um, and this this is one we're associated with, Arena 2036. It was officially opened last year. It is a brand new building on campus at the University of Stuttgart and it brings together 35 industry partners. Often they're competitors, but they're working collaboratively together to solve problems. The thing that I think makes this really unique is that they also have a startup competition. So they um, have a competition called Startup Autobahn where startups come and pitch their ideas and the winning um, companies are then nurtured and they're, they're assisted and they're helped to grow. And so I think that the combination of innovation and, and depth in research is really unique about this particular model. And so I think the landscape in Australia is actually really positive and digitalisation bring developed economies like Australia back into, the, into play because... We're not, no longer at a disadvantage with a high labour cost. We can do things smarter. We can um, do things in a virtual world. And it actually means that we can develop products and, and sell products more affordably. And in Germany, they have um, what they call a Mittelstand, which is the M of the SMEs. Um, and they're a different size and scale to us. But, but I think Australia, we're becoming less reliant on multinationals and we're seeing a really healthy startup innovation network happening and spin-out companies that are quickly growing um, from you know, a few people to several hundred people. And I'm seeing this more and more particularly in Victoria and I think that's really exciting because we're designing our own future and we're autonomous and we can link these companies into global value chains. So one of those companies was actually um, started by one of my PhD students who developed a carbon fibre wheel for the, a Formula SAE car and he um, then got together with some friends and they developed it further. They spun it out into a company and that company is now has a $50 million factory on campus at Deakin and they're supplying one-piece carbon fibre wheels to Ferrari, to the Ford GT, and they're just doing incredibly well and they employ around about 250 people in the region. Uh, and so I, we need to see more and more of that and encourage that in any way we can. And as researchers, we can work with these companies to support them in that growth. 
So Victoria is actually experiencing a renaissance in manufacturing and I can see that there's the potential for that to happen here in Queensland too. And I'm really excited by what you're doing, particularly in biofabrication, in renewable materials, for example. Um, and of course, the, the work that you're doing here in 3D printing is, is absolutely world class. But in Victoria, um, manufacturing actually employs, even with the auto industry transition, still employs around 300,000 people and we had a $28 billion um, gross value add with $18.6 billion of goods exported in 2016-2017. So despite what you hear about manufacturing, it's actually healthy and growing and a really great area to be in. So my institute um, was, uh, was born two years ago and we came out and said we're focused on Industry 4.0 and that raised quite a few eyebrows um, because... It was seen as a, um, a bit of a, a trend rather than something that's here to stay, but it really is a revolution that's happening. So we're focused on industrial automation, um, the Internet of Things, new manufacturing processes for next generation materials and design-driven manufacturing innovation. So how we can integrate design and engineering in a more robust way. We, um, We've almost, along the way, for establishing um, an Industry 4.0 test lab for 3D printing of composites, which I'll talk about. We're really interested in graphene and how we certify graphene. I'll explain why that's important later. And we've built an Industry 4.0 hub for SME engagement. So these are some of the projects that we've brought in in the first two years, um, and they're really varied. We're working on everything from predictive maintenance algorithms with a soft drink company, um, and a beer company to help improve their production process. We're working with a startup, which I love, that's remanufacturing automotive components. So rather than just scrapping plastic components from the automotive industry, there's a, um, a vision system that inspects how the part is damaged and then using 3D printing to, to repair that part so it can be put back in service, which is good for the environment as well as saving um, an enormous amount of money. We're working with Ford, we're working with Boeing globally, and we've established um, strategic partnerships with the relevant organisations in Germany as well as a number of university partnerships. And we were lucky enough to receive this digitalisation grant from Siemens, who've been a phenomenal partner, and this has been predominantly driven by um, our Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research and Development, Professor Alex Subic, who's really led, has spearheaded that partnership with Siemens. Um, this is the Industry 4.0 Hub, so we've got, we've looked at the Fraunhofer model for how you understand um, the digitalisation readiness assessment of a particular company, translated that to the Australian environment and then um, helping train companies in, in adopting some of these new digital technologies. And we also have a higher apprenticeship program, so we're training um, apprentices to become Industry 4.0 experts and they're, they're working on cyber physical systems. They're creating like a virtual twin of a manufacturing process. The thing I love about this is the first 20 students came from such a broad range of backgrounds and one of them in fact was um, a beauty therapist who's now working in Siemens in Industry 4.0. So I think there's just some wonderful um, human um, stories from, from this particular program and it's really hands-on and it looks like they have an awful lot of fun. So I'm going to talk about this. Um, there's, 
we, I've just come from a meeting this week with Siemens where we got, um, Siemens brought together the six founding Industry 4.0 test labs and there's one in almost every state. They've missed the Northern Territory for some reason, that, that was off the radar. But um, it's going to be uh, really interesting. Each is focused on a, a different area um, and this is just the beginning. The idea is that this is just a seed and that Siemens really want to roll this out further at, in due course as these develop. So ours is focused on 3D printing of composites and this is the key challenge for making composites. So to put this in perspective, the first composite I ever made in my PhD in an autoclub had a 20-hour cure cycle time. So it was in the, in the oven being cooked with the epoxy resin being being um, cured for 20 hours. I remember coming in at midnight to take it out of the autoclave. We now have resin chemistries that can make one part per minute. So I snap cure epoxy resin systems. So when you can do that, it means that everything else you do to make a composite is a rate limiting step. And here you can see some of those problems. So you, you will still go into the most advanced tier one supply pliers in the world and you will see people pushing fabric around onto tools. You will see people pouring resin onto parts and people drilling holes in things um, where there shouldn't necessarily be holes. Composites don't like having holes drilled into them. So the opportunity is to, to really change the way we do this. And this was highlighted in particular, we did a project with Mercedes and this is the thing I'm most proud of in my entire career because it led to an actual part on a car. And so I've made so many prototypes and so many demonstrators, but this is the rear wall of the S-Class Mercedes. You would never know it's there. Um, but it's the part that stops your golf clubs, you know, going into the back seat if you have a crash. It's structural as, um, and it, it's really important. And we worked with a company called Multimatic to make it and to develop the one part per minute cure system. And um, it, it w resulted in a 50% weight reduction. And it was a really challenging, challenging project. And one of those projects where I actually had people quit early on because they didn't think we could achieve it. And, and we got there in the end with thanks to our partnership with Multimatic. So um, we developed the, the prototype part and it went into production in the UK and they tried to automate the whole process. And I saw um, it was incredibly challenge, challenging to get the fiber into the tool, to demold, to inspect, to trim in the, the time frame of this one minute. And so that's when we, we came up with, a, um, and worked with industry to come up with this new concept for not only how we could automate composite production, but how we could use new digital technologies to control it and working with Siemens. And so it really starts from this digital design and we're working with the University of Stuttgart who have a graphic-based design language to optimise part geometry and um, the design of a particular part. That then generates machine code for the 3D printing machine. That creates a two-dimensional near-net shape preform. So we then need to convert that into three dimensions. Um, finally, it's cured with a resin in a press and then inspected and trimmed. And so this is what the, the factory layout will look like. We're partnered with a, a company called Phil, who are based in Girton in Austria. And this is the material flow. The material comes into the multi-layer machine that you can see there. It then um, gets transferred by a robot. 
to this double diaphragm forming process. This is a commonly used process in the aerospace industry and the whole industry is struggling to automate it as well as to understand how to inspect it for defects. So we have an automated inspection system there and then finally the robot translates, transfers the material into the cure. And the whole thing, um, well this is the key piece of equipment. This is genuinely a world first. The uh, prototype machine has just been built and the first commercial machine will be a part of, embedded in this factory. So these spools host the material and you can have a range of different materials there. So say for example this is a carbon fiber unidirectional tape with a polymer. It's automatically replenished and it's an automated fiber placement tape placement technology with multiple heads. You can create a near net shape preform with any fiber orientation because you can rotate the tool to a, a very fine degree. We have a very fine level of control over that. And the way that you would make an aircraft wing, if you're Boeing, is it's like making a sewing pattern where you have a roll of fabric and you cut out a shape and you throw 60% of that really expensive material away. Here we only waste 10% of material, so there's just a little bit of trimming at the end that you do. So it's a radical new technology. It's going to be on display at a trade show in Paris in a few weeks and they're going to use the lessons learned from the prototype machine, which is the same size and scale, but with less functionality, to, to design and develop our machine, which will arrive early next year. So this is a radically new concept for making composites, and it deposits one layer of material every 15 seconds. So you can really quickly build up a, a structure. It's enormous. It can make parts that are 1.6 by 1.6 metres. And they only let us take a picture of the machine if we stood in front of it and obscured some of it. But this gives you an idea of the size and scale. Um, and so the spools are there. This is the rotating table. And there's a whole lot of Siemens control systems behind here. So this was taken in December. I hope they've progressed a little bit further if they're going to ship it to Paris in a couple of weeks. <laughs> but it was really exciting to be able to see it, it come to life. So, so my, my other passion is putting large-scale industrial kit into university campuses, and I've, I've done this three times now. I've only had one explosion, so hopefully <laughs> this will be fine. So the second stage of this process is this double diaphragm forming process, and here you really want to avoid any fibre wrinkling, which can cause a defect in the part. Um, in the aerospace sector right now, they tend to qualify the process and set and forget, and that's with every aerospace company. So I'm going to skip over this. Here we are integrating, and this is another uh, world-first technology. This is an integrated optical and eddy current inspection system so that we can inspect any fibre misalignment on the surface of the material as well as looking through the depth at the same time. Um, this is a startup that's a spin-out from the research at the um, University of Stuttgart and it will be a really powerful technique that will enable us to look at um, any deformations in the part and correlate that with our digital simulations as well. So part of this is, is really ramping up our simulation activities so that we can um, really understand and, and the process. And really this is a lot like sheet metal forming of metals which 
Um, so we can learn a lot from that particular research. But that also makes it really appealing to industry. And if it looks like a metal, if it forms like a metal, um, then they're much more comfortable with it. So this just illustrates the um, PLM digital thread along with the manufacturing workflow. And the thing that this reminds me to talk about is that um, there are uh, new mechanisms for working with German research organisations that are really opening up. And so we put in an application last year um, for a project with Phil and a company called Quickstep here in Australia to look at this manufacturing side of things, the physical side of the system. And in parallel, in, um, in December, we wrote applications for the BMBF in Germany through their Interspin program, which is, is really there to support the internationalisation of their excellence clusters for two separate projects that will look at uh, specifically the preforming part that I just mentioned, as well as creating a digital twin of the whole process. So how can we um, really simulate the entire process in the digital world um, working with the Fraunhofer, with Siemens, with, with Faro, who, who are a metrology company, to really push the boundaries of virtual commissioning. Because these processes involve really um, you know, uh, fast-cure resin systems that have a tendency to exotherm. How do we minimise any incidences and how do we control that in a virtual world before we actually press the go button? So we're very, really excited about that and that will evolve further this year. Um, finally, um, the other thing that, that uh, the last part of the process is pressing it like you would a metal. Now, there's a huge wave of demand coming for high-temperature thermoplastics, so if anyone has any interest in high-temperature thermoplastics like PEAK and PEC, um, there's a big wave of demand coming in the aerospace sector, and that's a very specific chemistry that has been forgotten. There's a variety of reasons why it's, it's coming back into fashion and I would love to work with you on those particular chemistries because um, they're really unique and they're going to, there's going to be a high demand for them. And finally, our robot to move the material. So that's an overview of the whole facility um, and obviously our partnerships that we're working on. The materials that we've identified as a starting point, these are commercially available materials. I'll talk about the research for materials in a minute. Um, but there are some materials that we, we have uh, where we can access, you know, fast cure resin systems on fibre through our partners. We're also really interested in Dyneema, and I'll explain why later. But it is a material science platform. It's, it's going to be really exciting. And here are the potential um, markets for these materials. There's automotive and aerospace, I've mentioned those. Future mobility, we have um, a project that we're defining to look at future mobility with new models like Uber Elevate disrupting our mobility sector. That's going to be an interesting area for the future. Um, defence applications, and I'm looking for a killer sports application. So if anyone has a particular sports application where they think they could really make the most of either carbon fibre or Kevlar or Dyneema, I'd love to hear about it. Okay, so... Um, in my previous research, we did um, we had a discovery project that was focused on modification of carbon fibre surfaces. So the, the interface between the fibre and the matrix can be the Achilles heel in composite materials. And there's a real balance in getting it right. If you make it too strong, 
um, then you create fracture through the matrix, which reduces the strength of your composite. If you make it too weak, then you have failure between the fibre and the, and the matrix itself. So we looked at nature and the abalone shell and um, the inspiration. And the abalone shell is an incredibly uh, tough material because of this brick-and-mortar structure. So it has this uh, calcium carbonate crystals, which are held together by a chitin layer, but it's actually this assembled protein layer in between that creates a soft, soft, hard interface that really creates the strength in the abalone shell. And so we worked with um, Tiffany Walsh, who's a, a computational chemist at Deakin University who was doing research in this particular area, um, as well as Sally MacArthur, who was at Swinburne um, before I joined Swinburne, who did some plasma polymerization and was using plasma polymer coatings on fibre. And we were able to increase the um, interfacial shear strength of these particular composites by about 30%. So, and we, we did a lot of really interesting work around this and we were able to, um, to use a variety of techniques for fibre modification. However, the abalone shell is no longer the toughest material, it's actually the core of this mantis shrimp. And you'll see it in action there, smashing a shell to pieces. So the core of this shrimp packs the punch in a 22 caliber bullet. And it's only recently, maybe a year ago, that um, David Casalius did some work where he took one of these claws to a synchrotron to understand what made it so incredibly tough. And when he analysed it under the synchrotron, he found that the reason it's so tough is this helical arrangement of fibres where you have a one degree change in orientation of the fibres in every layer. And those structures are, are practically impossible to make unless you have the machine that we have. And I've made sure that when we're specifying the, um, creating the specifications that we have really fine control over the rotation of that table. So um, in, his, in the talk that he gave at, at Deakin a year ago, he said, I want someone to make me a Bugatti, and I said, I'm going to make you a Bugatti from, from these structures. So we're really excited about the research that this platform will enable in new fibre architectures and the properties that these might have. We have a, a phenomenal um, research leader at Swinburne, Dr. Nisha Hamid, who's doing some really interesting work on flexible formable resin systems. And um, he has an ARC DECRA fellowship to explore this. He's been uh, looking at epoxy resins and modifying them with ionic liquids. And by tailoring the ionic liquid to the epoxy resin, you can create thermosets that behave like a thermoplastic. So they can reversibly form and they're, they're very, very tough. And then if you tailor the ionic liquid, uh, you can actually uh, create ionic liquids that catalyze the, the cure as well. So you can have very, very fast curing epoxy resin systems. And so he's doing a lot of work in this space. Uh, we did some work again with Tiffany Walsh, who did some modeling to show that it creates a reversible complex. Nish is really interested in, in where we can go in terms of matrix chemistry. and the other thing that these ionic liquids can do, if you choose the right one, is that they're really good in dispersing graphene and epoxy resins too, and that will become relevant in a minute. I mentioned the, um, the manufacturing challenges around this intermediate product, the preform and wrinkling. Um, 
we've got one project that's focused on coating graphene onto carbon fibre so that we have a smart preform. So graphene can be used as a sensor. It can sense humidity, pressure, temperature. So we can have a smart material going through our smart process that reports back on the environment which it's experiencing. And the conventional approach to putting sensors into composite materials has been this. It's been to putting really large fibres, uh, fibre-brag gratings for structural health monitoring. There's the sensor systems and the technology has become smaller and more affordable and we're going to see the, uh, a complete um, resurgence of smart materials and a huge improvement in structural health monitoring and smart parts that, you know, for electric vehicles this is really important. Um, and, and sort of autonomous driving so that you, if you don't have a, a driver in the car who owns the car, if you change the business model for the car, then you need a car that can actually report back when it's been in an impact or needs a repair. So these materials are going to be really important. And here's a proof of concept. This is a compression test on a composite material where we've just dipped it into a very rough grade of graphene and you can see that with the load displacement curve, there's a change in electrical conductivity. So this is a very, very crude demonstrator that, that shows that the concept is achievable. We're now really trying to refine that and understand more about the mechanism so that we can control it. So just finally, I'm going to finish up with um, talking about graphene and the project that we have on graphene. And at Swinburne, I'll talk a little bit about it later. We have the Centre for Microphotonics where we have a phenomenal group that's creating supercapacitors and battery systems from graphene. Um, I'm interested in industrial grades of graphene and there was a standard that came out at the end of 2017 that defined um, graphene as having 10 layers or less, you have few layer graphene. And that is, that's enough for industrial applications. And it means that graphene can be cost competitive and used at scale. Our industry partner, Imagine Intelligent Materials, have created, um, this is the pathway for, for chemical exfoliation. They've created a process in Geelong that's capable of making 10 tonnes of graphene per year from um, chemically exfoliated graphite. So it's a thermal shock process um, and the graphene is then dispersed in, into a an acrylic and coated onto a textile. And their product is this geotextile. It was first used in Queensland to line a coal seam gas mining's uh, tailings pond. And the conductivity of the graphene was used to detect any leaching of hazardous material into the environment. So this is graphene at scale. And what's really interesting is that they've had a sudden spike in um, in sales in South Australia where they've now legislated that if you are putting a lining material into any kind of hazardous waste pond, you need to have a mechanism for detecting any leaks. And so we're going to see, think, I think we're going to see more and more of that. And it's it, of course it's really important and beneficial for the environment as well. So we connected with Imagine because I'd previously worked on an industry project where we developed a graphene nanocomposite where we um, exfoliated graphene into a particular polymer and we saw a 30-fold improvement in properties with less than 1% addition of graphene. And we got really excited by this result. 
and thought, well, that works for that particular one grade of graphene. We need to see if all the other grades, if, if they might do something even better. Nothing else worked. It was just this one grade from this one supplier. And so when my industry partner went to their management and said, hey, we've got this fantastic technology, we need to invest in it, they had a lot of trouble convincing their management to do that because their management said, well, why would we do that if there's just one supplier from, from one company? If they go broke, we can't make this product anymore. And so that really um, led us inadvertently to connect with Imagine on how, how do we really understand structure property and structure performance relationship in graphene-based materials so that we can de-risk supply chains and really um, increase investment in graphene-based technology. And um, in order to do this, we've um, connected with researchers. We're using lab-scale techniques. We're using the Australian synchrotron to look at graphene um, both you know, as uh, a dry graphene as well as graphene in a dispersion. And we're trying to understand what it is that makes different grades of graphene perform differently. We're also partnered with Data61. CSIRO um, and Data61 have created a drag and drop tool where you can input any um, graphene platelet size, graphene platelet geometry. You can introduce defects into graphene drop it into their tool and you will get a prediction of the properties of that particular grade of graphene as well as a confidence limit on those properties. So we're really trying to bring together a whole community to, to help solve some of these and understand better the way graphene performs. Brahman, of course, is the go-to lab technique and I'm sure you're all familiar with it and this is a comparison of graphite and graphene. Um, one of our partners on this project is Agilent and they've created a handheld Raman technique that can actually read through um, container materials. So this is a, a potentially a really great quality control technique. Um, Agilent have also done some work on um, carbon fibre composite um, inspection too with handheld infrared. So they're really pushing the boundaries of analytical techniques to help with these things. Um, and then if this is the more fundamental work that we're doing and we we're privileged enough to have um, Rick Kane um, come out and visit us yesterday and, and he's also working in this particular area of um, laser writing circuitry into uh, graphene oxide layers and creating supercapacitors. And, and Professor Baohua Ya at... Um, Swinburne is leading the charge here and she's commercialising her best battery technology which um, has the potential to charge your phone, your mobile phone in five seconds. So we're going to see some really interesting advance, advances in battery um, technology, supercapacitors and energy storage in the near future. And so um, she is closely associated with the Institute if you'd like to speak with her about that. So most importantly... Um, and this is my call to arms, the Victorian government has supported the establishment of the Australian Graphene Industry Association. So because this is a nascent area and a nascent industry, it's really important that we um, come together as a community, that we share knowledge uh, so that we can help commercialise graphene technology. And so you can join the Australian Graphene Industry Association. We're actually looking for more board members at the moment. Um, and it's federally and state connected. The Advanced Manufacturing Growth Centre have been a huge supporter of this. And 
and it's really going to be um, not only a point to connect with the relevant bodies overseas, but also uh, a point at which we can lobby government to support the, the industry as it grows. So it's really exciting to be part of this. We held a conference last year called um, Graphene Plus Industry 4.0. We had an industry roundtable um, the day following and there was a, a great deal of discussion about why we haven't seen more graphene products in the marketplace. And then the very next week there was this enormous you know, you know, plethora of announcements and one of the, the key technologies that's really been adopted um, recently is a polyurethane graphene nanocomposite that was developed by Ford that is an engine casing and it reduces noise vibration and harshness, it improves the mechanical properties of the polyurethane as well as the thermal property management and that goes on every F-150 truck so it's the highest production vehicle for Ford in the US. So we're starting to see, my industry partner used to say graphene can do anything except escape the laboratory but we're finally seeing graphene get out into the real world and it's going to be a really exciting time. So um, just finally, we would love to collaborate with you. Um, we can see an enormous complementary capabilities. We're doing some really interesting work on 3D printing, on material characterization, on um, tailoring chemistry and on um, biomedical applications of graphene nanocomposites. And that's just the starting point. There are many, many other aspects that we can work together on and let's work as a community so that we can ensure that Australia's manufacturing um, sector is developing new products and new technologies and linking them into global value chains and really thriving. And that way we, we all succeed. I'd like to invite you to come to Melbourne if you're interested in, in polymers or composites. The world's premier conference for composite material is being held in August this year in Melbourne. And this is a major coup. It took us um, a long time to, to convince the committee you have to bid to host the conference and then the assembly votes and it took us a couple of goes. It's only the second time this conference has been held in Australia. And we've been overwhelmed by the number of abstracts we've received. We're going to have probably around 1,700 of, of the world's leaders in this field, including, uh, you know, the, the head of Boeing Commercial Aircraft. Um, I think there's a CTO from COMAC in China. So it's going to be a great combination of fundamental research and industrial expertise. It will be a lot of fun. Unfortunately, the weather in Melbourne in August is something less than desirable. <laughs> we really should have done that. <laughs> um, and then this is just an acknowledgement to my research group. I started at Swinburne um, three, three years ago now as one person and Nisha joined me very, very soon after that and he's been really instrumental in growing the group and I'd like to really acknowledge him and thank you all for coming along and for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at 
ife underscore qt and also on instagram at ife.qt we really hope you enjoyed this ife podcast <laughs>